Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast about the sale of Wembley Stadium. I'm pro the deal. I saw it as being one of those very rare moments in sports economy where both sides were getting a good deal. Now I'm aware that there are pros and cons and for me what's more interesting isn't so much the, the deal itself but the reaction of people that were anti it. And I think it, it comes down to a very British way of looking at history in the sense that the narrative that people that were anti the deal was somewhere along the lines of this, that Wembley Stadium was the, the home of English football, was the home of the cup final, and was such an important part of our cultural sporting history that having it under our control was just a vital for you know national pride as a symbol of what we stand for. And that, you know, selling it to a you know, foreign sports owner could lead to any number of things. It could lead to it, Wembley being knocked down or sold to somewhere else and that eventually we'd lose this asset and we would never able, be able to, you know, either buy it back or use it on, and we'd lose this wonderful sporting icon. But it's a really simplistic and somewhat skewed version of history. It seems to sort of almost posit that the FA built Wembley and always had control of it and now selling it is just a betrayal of the British sporting public. And it's not true. Wembley was always privately owned. It was only when they knocked down the old stadium that the FA then took on this responsibility. And as a result, this is where some of the issues lie. If you compare Wembley to any number of different national stadiums in Great Britain and Ireland, they didn't rebuild Wembley on the basis of it being used as a football stadium. Now that sounds mental straight off the bat, but... It wasn't. If they had wanted to build a football stadium, it wouldn't have necessarily cost £757 million. What they wanted was a iconic structure. They wanted something that was huge, that was 90,000. That had all the mod cons that had huge amounts of uh, conferencing facilities. And that could be used all throughout the year. And what they also wanted was something that had international connotations. They wanted it to be the world's best stadium. And to an extent, they succeeded at that time. But it was at a cost. In other words, they built a neutral venue. They weren't building this stadium on the basis of how can England be good at home in qualifiers and in friendlies and on the basis that if England ever you know, got a European Championship or hosting a World Cup, they didn't build it on that basis. It isn't a, an intimidating venue. What, 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 what Wembley is brilliant at is creating an atmosphere for a big game spectacle. You know, an FA Cup, an FA Cup semi-final, a Champions League final, or a UEFA Cup final. It's not really designed for a 
let's say, uh, World Cup qualifier England need to win to go to the World Cup and to create an intimidating atmosphere so that, you know, the away team are beaten halfway down into the tunnel. That's not what they built it for. And as a result, because Wembley isn't really just the home of the FA Cup final and England friendlies, it's an international sports venue. And this is where English history find, and British history, to an extent, finds it so complicated. If it was simply just a case of rebuilding the stadium, you know, the old, you know, crumbling Wembley Stadium and rebuilding it for the English national team in the FA Cup final, it wouldn't have cost £757 million. You would have designed it somewhat differently. It's like, if you compare the atmosphere at the Millennium Stadium, the Aviva Stadium, so Lansdowne Road, and Hampden Park and Murrayfield, and even Twickenham to an extent. They, they were built on entire, a lot cheaper. And what they're designed to do, basically Twickenham has to be HQ. The idea is it's 70,000, 80,000 screaming rugby fans willing England to victory. And also being a set piece for you know the... Um, end-of-season playoffs in the Premiership. So the grand final, effectively. It's not designed to be an international venue. The only time you'd ever use Twickenham as an international venue is if you were hosting the Rugby World Cup final, which is, again, just another, you know, spectacle. It's, you know, the idea is, is that with Twickenham is that they're quite happy to, you know, have concerts, the odd NFL game, but they are not aiming to maximise it. In other words, the way how Twickenham was built was bit by bit. When they, you know, when the RFU had enough money, they would build another stand. Or if they, the facilities need to be upgraded, they will be upgraded in a sort of piecemeal way. Because in the end, rugby doesn't have the same national footprint, or rugby union, doesn't have the same you know, national footprint as football and cricket. Therefore, you know, the RFU is the wealthiest rugby football union, in the world. So in other words, whenever they do something, it's, you know, they have the advantage of the money, the time, and without the scrutiny. So in other words, they never have to worry about the outside world in the sense of scrutiny. In other words, the England rugby team, as long as they are one of the best six, seven rugby teams in the world, as long as they are competitive in the Six Nations, as long as they are not, you know, embarrassing themselves at the World Cup, in other words, if they're getting to the quarterfinals and beyond, rugby is doing fine. You know, they, it's, there's no sense that the RFU is looking to hugely, you know, revolutionise and to push rugby onto the next level in the same way trying to ape the Premiership. They are not trying to expand uh, you know, the in, you know, art, English rugby outwards. You know, in the end, yes, they'd like some strong northern teams, but it's not the end of the world. If they were that committed, then England wouldn't play all of their games in Twickenham. Much like in the last um, Rugby World Cup that we hosted, um, the World Rugby basically said to them, you cannot have England play every single game at Twickenham, that's ridiculous. So, okay, grudgingly the RFU said, all right, okay, fine, we will schedule one of the group games. And out of you know, all of the group games they picked, they picked the last one. England versus Uruguay. Now, Uruguay are a semi-pro outfit. 
You know, they are willing triers, but they were always going to be hammered by something, you know, akin to a cricket score. So they had it, I believe, at the ITAD. And the idea was is that by then England would have qualified for the quarterfinals and it would be a tune-up game where they'd use some of the members of the squad. You know, they'd run up a big score and, you know, they could then tick the box that says that they've, you know, expanded, you know, English rugby. In the end, they'd already been knocked out by that point and it was a dead rubber game. You know, it wasn't a full house. England won by a cricket score. And in the end, nothing more has become of it. You know... All of the Autumn Internationals are always at Twickenham. All of the home games for Six Nations are at Twickenham. And that's the RFU and the rugby populace are happy with that. It doesn't bother them. In other words, that it always means that Twickenham is a sellout. And it's always going to be the same sort of crowd, the same sort of people. And as far as the RFU, they're happy with that. Now, if you then look at something like the Millennium Stadium. Millennium Stadium is about so 18,000 seats less than Wembley and it's nowhere near as swanky but what they worked out was is that it was a perfect location. It wasn't the biggest one but it, you know, they could build a stadium and it's got great atmosphere, it's got the roof and it works. But it's also someone sitting there thinking, okay, we need to create an atmosphere so that Wales can be England at the Millennium Stadium. How can we do this? How can we get a venue that is going to make a huge amount of noise, that's going to be intimidating, that is, you know, in some ways going to build the atmosphere so that if Wales are ever five points down with ten minutes to go at home to England, that they can beat them. Or if the Welsh national team were ever in a playoff to get into the World Cup, how can we get this stadium full up, 72,500 people, that's going to create an atmosphere to help Wales' rugby team and their football team? And that's, and that's the principle. In other words, yes, there was the thought that they might hold, you know, maybe Rugby World Cup games. They might hold a Champions League final or a Europa League final. But that's, if, if those didn't happen, it wasn't the end of the world. You know, in other words, they were quite happy to spend, you know, about three, four hundred million pounds. And, you know, it wouldn't be the perfect stadium. It wasn't aiming to be a, you know, world landmark of a stadium. It was just going to be a good stadium that would do exactly what it said on the tin. Much in the same way the Aviva Stadium at Lansdowne Road. Yeah, that could, there's always the possibility that there could be European finals. But that's a kind of a one-off event that might happen once every 10, 15 years. It wasn't designed with the intention of, you know, becoming the, you know, a stadium that's going to be 80,000, 90,000. And as a result, it's just... You know, the way how that stadium works, it's the Plyber place that has helped the Republic of Ireland football team because it can create you know, a, a massive amount of noise. Because, and also there was limitations. So in other words, at one end, there's virtually no space. And so the designers had to then factor that in. And as a result, it's quite quirky. It's got a great atmosphere. And it's the sort of place, again, it, I mean, all sort of... United Kingdom and Irish stadiums are always in some way shape, built on the intention of how can we beat England? How can we create an atmosphere that will you know, scare the English and help our teams win? Whereby Wembley was never built with that intention. Wembley was always seen as this landmark because it is an international landmark. But why? Well, because you have all of this huge, great history of 
you know, being the stadium which has had the most European Cup finals. It's had a World Cup final. It's had a European Championship. Now, the thing about the World Cup final is that we all see it as being, oh, but England won there. There was, not, there was no guarantee that England were going to win there. Imagine if they'd got knocked out in the semis by Portugal. It would have then been a Portugal-West Germany final. And it would still be an iconic stadium, you know, because it's held a World Cup. It's, it's special for us because England won there. But that's sort of missing the point, really. Is that you've had boxing, you've had NFL, you've had rugby league, you've had the Live Aid concert. Wembley is not just a football stadium. And the way how it was built and the way how the FA wanted to use it as a, a way of projecting, I suppose, in a way, English power. And, you know, just how big and just how this is the world's most famous and this is the home of football. And as a result, the atmosphere at Wembley isn't particularly great. As a Spurs season ticket holder, I've been at Wembley more times than I care to admit. And... It's it is a neutral stadium. It doesn't, it, you know. There there's no areas where fans can congregate. Let's say you might have, you know, at the Millennium Stadium, you kind of have one end which is slightly different from the others. Yeah, whereby Wembley is kind of quite cookie cutter. In other words, it looks yeah everything. Yeah, if you go from one end of the stadium to the other, there is no differences. There is no. It's not like they've created a, a one massive end. You know, where you, people can congregate and make a huge amount of noise. It was never built in that way. And so as a result, that's where it, it, it fails. If, if you were building a national stadium, you'd want to build... You'd be looking to you know, create some form of home advantage. And that's the one thing the FA haven't done with this stadium. Because if you create a stadium with home advantages, it, it suddenly becomes a lot harder to host FA Cup finals. It becomes harder to host World Cup finals and Champions League finals. Because in the end, this is the thing, part of Wembley's mystique is how the rest of the world see it. They see it as this wonderful, iconic venue and how much of an honour it is. And in the end, it creates a really weird situation. The away fans that go to Wembley for international games are always really pumped up, always very loud. The players are inspired. They're not intimidated by it. And so the problem, this is where the problem that English football fans have in sort of trying to create this image of Wembley as this wholly British English enterprise. It doesn't fit. In other words, you don't build this stadium that's supposed to be one of the world's best, greatest stadiums and then pretend that it's only really an English-only thing. Because it doesn't really work. It, Wembley's best atmospheres are always when it's a neutral game. When you have half of Wembley is Tottenham, half of Wembley is Chelsea, and you have every, all the marbles are on this game. It's a semi-final or it's a final. It doesn't work when it's a friendly. It doesn't really work when it's a, a qualifier. And so... We really come to Shadid Khan's offer to buy Wembley. Now, I think the, the key element you have to say about it is to actually work out why he's buying it. Now, essentially, 
he is the owner of Fulham FC and the Jacksonville Jaguars. Now, the Jacksonville Jaguars, Jacksonville is a small city in the north of Florida. It's not particularly well known and really it was an expansion team in the NFL in the early 90s. Now, there were several other bids and it was a little bit of a surprise that Jacksonville won. Now, part of this is really the NFL and their use of leverage. In other words, what the NFL is perfect and NFL owners is to always have a selection of cities that would desperately love an NFL team. And so that's, there's always a permanent leverage. So in other words, when, they, when you're looking to get a new stadium or if you're looking for tax benefits or if you're looking for anything from your local populace where there's an NFL franchise, you always have the boogeyman in the corner, which is always, I can move this team. And for a lot of years, it was L.A., because L.A. had lost their two teams. The Rams had moved to St. Louis, and the Oakland Raiders had moved from Oakland to L.A., and then back to Oakland. So, in other words, you had this huge, great world city that had no teams, and there was a stadium there. So you have the Memorial Stadium, which has been used for USC games, so it's University of Southern California, and it was used in the LA Olympics in the 80s. And by having that, that always gave power to the owners, and always was leverage again when they needed something. Now, the point is, the NFL have now moved the St. Louis Rams, well, the ownership have, and the San Diego Chargers have moved to LA, they're building a new stadium. So there's been a loss of leverage, and this is where London really comes in. London is one of the, on the list, I mean, you've probably got San Antonio, you've got another couple of cities, possibly even St. Louis, where there's, you could persuade the own, you know, a team to move. And really, Jacksonville is always going to be a small market team. It's, you know, Florida's third team. The Miami Dolphins are a lot more famous, you know, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers... Jacksonville Jaguars are for Shadid Khan the idea of moving them to London would be very beneficial in the long term because London is a huge you know, national, you know, international city it's got great transport links from the rest of Europe and the idea is, is that in the long run London is a better bet than Jacksonville and you could there's many different ways how you could do it but he needs a stadium now, essentially, there's a couple of issues. Is that you would need Wembley Stadium for at least eight home games and potentially two or three more post-season games. So you would need to guarantee the stadium for at least 11 weeks of the year. And obviously, you then, if you did have a franchise that moved to London, the FA, as owners of Wembley, would have leverage over you. They'd be able to jack up the rent agreement. Where else are you going to go? The only other place that you could now go would be the new White Hot Lane Stadium. Now, the difference is, is that Wembley is a grass pitch. And the what you need for a proper American football stadium is you need two absolutely huge changing rooms. And you need a third changing room for the cheerleaders. You need extensive um, media rooms because the sort of media coverage of an average NFL game dwarfs that of an average Premier League game. 
there's a lot more moving pieces and the problem is you have the sidelines in other words if you ever watch an NFL game or even the highlights you'll see there's a huge amount of people on both sidelines which means that if you've got a standard football stadium the first 10 rows can't be used because you've got all these people on the sidelines and you can't actually see the field so Wembley is an imperfect venue. It's got a lot of things going for it. The transport links with Wembley Park, the fact that it's, it's internationally well-known, you've got seating, but you, you would need to make modifications for it if you wanted it to be a functioning week-by-week -week NFL stadium. Now, the point is, is that the FA, as owners, wouldn't really be that interested in making that, that kind of changes. So the only other place you can go is White Hart Lane, and that means that you're dealing with Daniel Levy. So in other words, you would then have to pay you know, relatively extortionate rent to him for the use of the stadium, and you'd also would still be essentially a tenant. You'd always be at the whim of your landlord for you know trying to get access. So in other words, a Tottenham game would always come first, and the Jacksonville game would then have to be, or the for example, the London Jaguars game would then have to be rescheduled. Now, the point is is that what the advantages White Hart Lane has is that it now has a completely separate retractable NFL surface below the football one. So, in other words, you don't lose any of the first 10 rows of seats because the NFL pitch is lower than the standard football pitch. You do have all the media rooms, you do have all of the changing room sizes, you even have a separate entrance. So in other words, the West Stand is the main entrance for the football stadium. The East Stand, the opposite one, has its own atrium, own entrance, which is designed for the NFL. The underlying problem for Shadid Khan is that really the only way that White Hart Lane would work for him as a stadium was if he owns the stadium, which means you have to buy Spurs. Now the problem is, the cost of that would be, so you'd be taking on the several hundred million pounds worth of debt that the stadium's come up against, and you'd have to buy Spurs, one of the top you know, 10, 15 biggest clubs in the world. You'd have to sell Fulham, and eventually the cost would be somewhere in the vicinity, you'd have to say probably of somewhere between two to three billion. Once you've got rid of the stadium debt, once you've bought the stadium, once you've bought the club, and you've then you'd be able to make some of that money back by selling Fulham, but you know, in comparison, the size of Fulham and the size of Spurs, it's a still huge cash outlay, and you would still then you would then have to then make Tottenham, you'd have to then keep Tottenham to the level they are now, or push them on to the Champions League, and winning things, and so then you'd be competing against Abu Dhabi. You're competing against the size of Manchester United. You've got John Henry at Liverpool, and you've got Roman Abramovich at Chelsea and Arsenal. You you know you'd still have to factor in Kroenke. That that's a that's a huge amount of money that you'd have to be competing with, and you'd have an expectant fan base. Whereby if you're dealing with Fulham, no, you you know you've got nowhere near that amount of pressure or that amount of money that you have to put in. So the only other option for Shadid would be build your own NFL stadium in London, which would then mean you'd have to find the land at a time when the price of land in London is exceptionally high. You would then have to, you know, it'd have to be near the right transport links, it'd have to be in the centre because you're trying to persuade people to come to your games. That would easily be two, three billion. 
which is why it makes sense for him to spend seven, six, seven hundred million pounds on Wembley. Because the transport link's already there. All of the, you know, development that has now basically encircled Wembley in terms of houses, offices, and, you know, you've got to have a box park there. All, and the shopping and the everything else uh, means that it's there. Now, the downside is, is that, yep, yeah, Wembley's going to need somewhere, anywhere in the next sort of 10, 15, 20 years. You're going to need about 70 to 100 million pounds worth of repairs. And if you wanted to, and I presume he would, would be then trying to reconfigure bits and pieces of the stadium to make it more NFL friendly. But it's still by several, by at least probably anywhere between 750 million to a billion pounds cheaper than all of the other options. So the point is, if he builds his own stadium, it would then be a bit of a white elephant because you wouldn't have, because obviously the only team that you could potentially have as an anchor tenant would be Chelsea. Do I think that Roman Abramovich would accept Chelsea being renters? No, I don't think so. And that would mean you'd have to put it somewhere in West London, which means you're out of the centre, which then makes it less likely that you're going to get other events. And it makes it that much more harder for people to go there. You really, if you want an NFL franchise, you need it to be somewhere central with some form of history before it. In other words, you would then just have a stadium that would be used for 8 to 11 games a season, which means the other 40 weeks of the year is empty. And there's already a huge amount of venues in London floating about that can be used for concerts, anything else. It's not a city that is lacking in stadium space in any way, shape or form. If he takes over Tottenham, he then has to then have two franchises with huge amounts of money coming into them, but also huge amounts of demand. And he then have to pay over the odds. Which is explains, perfectly encapsulates why he wants it. This is for him the best and most cheapest option for him to get a stadium. And the other benefits that Wembley have would be that he would already have anchor tenants. So in other words, he would have... England games, he'd have FA Cup semi-finals, he'd have the playoff finals, he'd have the FA Cup final every year, you can still have boxing, in other words it is a fully functioning business concern that is profitable now I think one of the things that probably damaged his chances of getting the bid was by him suggesting that Wembley could be run better, now the point is he I don't think he actually necessarily believes that. I think anything would any kind of improvement on the current, you know, the way how Wembley's run would be marginal at best. You might get a couple more gigs, you might get a couple more events, but it's not going to change, you know, put it this way, if Wembley maintain control over Wembley, even if they were to work harder at marketing or, you know, having more events, it's not going to cover the hundred million pounds that they're going to have to spend on refurbishment and maintenance, put it that way. But he had to say that because what he can't say is to every single person in Jacksonville who currently have personal seat licences for the next 10 years, who are ponying up money to rock up every single week to um, Everclear Stadium, is your team are going to move to London shortly. 5, 10, 15 years, it's happening, it's inevitable. 
at which point the bottom will fall out. In other words, Jacksonville Jaguars as a team, they got to the playoffs last year and were, you know, within a couple of peer, a couple of quarters of going to the Super Bowl, are not a traditionally, you know, successful team. They've had a couple of playoff runs, but they've never been to a Super Bowl and they don't have that level of goodwill that would mean that people would keep turning up year after year for a team that's going to move sooner or later and really leave them high and dry. So he had to create an image that at first glance meant that this was an investment for him so that he can guarantee you know, using Wembley for the odd Jaguars game and that actually it was also as much of an investment and that he sees it as somehow undervalued. He doesn't. By buying it for £700 million, he is overvaluing it. But for him, £700 million might be, let's say, £200 million more than Wembley's worth. But for him, it saves him at least a billion somewhere else. Because all of the other options are much more expensive. So, But that's where the problem lies, is that people have then said, well, actually, why don't we keep Wembley then if it's so valuable and you know, can be utilised better? Well, it can't, but he can, you know, effectively say out loud that he was overbuying Wembley because actually, you know, there's a longer term plan that involved him owning the stadium for the Jacksonville Jaguars to move to London permanently. Which is why that there's he's come out with a state Jaguars today has said we think Wembley is the absolutely best stadium, and that it has the history and the transport links. Really, what it was saying is. We have no intention of ever renting White Hot Lane from Daniel Levy. And I think one of the things that I think has been really underplayed is the sense that it was actually very, his, the way how he's gone about it was actually really intelligent. In other words, he understood exactly that he could have easily just sat there and put in a £500 million bid and essentially taken control but the way how he went about it was in a sense was an awareness that if it was let's say a hedge fund that thought Wembley was underutilized and that actually they could you know effectively run it better than the FA make more money out of it and eventually sell it on for a profit they wouldn't have really cared too much about the grassroots they'd have put the money in got the control of the stadium one way or the other and gone about their business whereby she did come because he has owned Fulham because he has spent enough time in this country had an awareness that really he wanted this you know stadium thing to work as a long-term consensus in other words he doesn't want the FA Cup final to go somewhere else because it doesn't have a because just using Wembley for the Jaguars it would be somewhat profitable, but Wembley is a lot more profitable when it's used as for football, boxing and NFL. And he really did want the stadium to remain. And so and so by characterising the bid as a way of leaving a legacy. Now the point is, is that when the FA built Wembley, they believed they were making a landmark and a legacy so I think they saw it when they first started talking about redeveloping Wembley. Because there was a huge debate in the 90s over 
the future of Wembley. They knew that the stadium as it was was crumbling, that there wasn't it couldn't be retrofitted, it couldn't be you know, they couldn't keep the base of it and redevelop the the whole thing needed to come down. And there was a huge debate. There was some whether it should be in Birmingham because it's in the centre. There were some arguments over whether it should as a national stadium should have an athletics track or it could be in Manchester. There was there was no guarantee that Wembley was going to, you know, be would remain as the national stadium. You also have to remember we're used now to a Wembley that's been redeveloped all around the stadium. Whereby the old Wembley used to have Wembley Way and the rest of it was just a giant car park. It was you know, Wembley wasn't a beautiful place to visit. It was you went to the stadium, you went out of the stadium, you know. It was just the magic of going to Wembley and walking down Wembley Way. The rest of it was rough. It was industrial, it was concrete, it was great, it was asphalt. And it was linked to the bid for the 2006 World Cup. So there was an, I think the FA had it in their mind that they would build the world's biggest, the world's greatest stadium. That's why they put a roof on it. Wembley didn't really need a roof and as far as I'm aware it, I don't think it even works now, but it was virtually never used. But the point is, is that their view was, is that even if it cost an extra 100 million or an extra 200 million, they were going to build a stadium with all of the mod cons. There wouldn't be anything left out. If, if one stadium had one conference centre, Wembley would have three. If, you know, you know, any comparable stadium in the world in the late 90s, early 2000s had three restaurants, Wembley would have five. And... But as a result, what they created was a stadium that really lacked soul. It lacked national character. In other words, you have the arch over the stadium, which I quite like. And you've got the Bobby Moore statue. But the rest of it, even Wembley Way, is very historical. But it's not... There's not a load of statues. There's not murals. There's not... There's no... You don't know. Basically, you can walk from Wembley Park Tube Station to Wembley. You can get to your seat without really ever understanding why this stadium is so venerated. I mean, I, I think where the bit where I get into uh, to go up to my seat, there's a few kind of like um, sort of spray-painted things on the wall saying, oh, no... Uh, like uh, quiz questions that then you get on the first elevator, oh, sorry, the first escalator, and it'll have a question, and then by the time you get to the second escalator, it will have the answer. But I think if they, for the seven hundred and fifty-seven million pounds that they spent on all the years it took to to rebuild the stadium, is that the national part of the stadium was never really utilized, and that's somewhat deliberate. In other words, if you look at when there's there's no seats there, you have Wembley picked out, but you don't have the three lions. You know, the, the, even the colour scheme. It, it's just basically a place that effectively works on the basis that by going to Wembley in the first place, you already know that it is this iconic venue. It doesn't tell you anything about the 68 
you know, European Cup final where Manchester United were the first English team to ever win. It doesn't tell you about Barcelona winning in 92. It doesn't tell you the walk to the stadium or anything really. And I've been into different bits of the stadium. Ever really goes into any detail. In other words, it's entirely done. principle is that you already know. Even if you're foreign or if you're local, the idea is that you already know it. And just by going to Wembley, it's a day out. And that's why it fails as a national stadium. It doesn't really tell us anything about ourselves. The only thing it tells us is that we have this history that is somehow international. In other words, if you compare to, let's say, Hampden Park. Now, Hampden Park is uniquely Scottish. It is, you know, it has these, you know, these attendance records it has all of these you know great events that took place and great moments in like you know you have 130,000 people there's even some talk of 140,000 people being at games and you know it's in the rivalry between England and Scotland really the it only has a, a limited international one it's really you've got that Real Madrid Eintracht Frankfurt you know, European Cup, and you've got that European Cup win for Real Madrid when they beat Bayer Leverkusen. And as a result, when Hampden Park is redeveloped, when it was redeveloped in the 90s, it was designed with the intention of maintaining the Hampden Raw, making something that would be you know, something that Scottish people could be proud of. Now the problem, and this is where Hampden Park's issues today, is if you compare it with, let's say, the Millennium Stadium. Now, the Millennium Stadium's success was based on the principle that the Welsh national team for football and the Welsh rugby team would use it. And so it was easy to kind of spread out the costs and there was, you know, one stadium, two teams. Much in the same principle with Lansdowne Road, the Aviva Stadium is, yeah, Ireland would use it for rugby and they'd use Republic of Ireland would use it for football. Now the problem that Hampden Park has is that the Scottish Rugby Union have Murrayfield. So Hampden Park is essentially simply used for Queen's Park who own it and the FA that rents it and uses it for Scotland international games. So as a result when it comes to redeveloping it, when it comes down to money side of things it's a lot harder to basically, you know, it's a lot easier for the Welsh public to say, OK, we'll build this stadium for the millennium, Cardiff Arms Park, redevelop it, £300 million, job done. And that will then solve all of our problems with regards to stadiums for 40, 50, 60, 70 years. Much in the same principle you can use for the Aviva Stadium. Hamden's different because basically Queen's Park are in the, I think, Scottish third division, and they kind of flip between the second and the third division, but... They're never going to need a 50,000, 60,000 seat stadium. No. And as a result, all you can really use Hampton for is international semi-finals, finals. Which means that it's a lot harder to go to Scottish Parliament and say, we need 60, 70, 80, 100, 200 million pounds to redevelop the stadium. I mean, this was the problem they had in the 90s. The issue, and that's why the stadium has basically a running track around it that no one has used in 60, 70 years and no one's going to use. Because they didn't really have the money to knock down both ends and you know, essentially turn it into a football-only stadium. Which is why the ends are 
massively far back from the thing. And really all it is is seats bolted onto terracing. It is, you know, in that regard, a, you know, a crumbling icon. And that's why there's currently debate in Scotland over, well, does the Scottish government, Scottish parliament, have £300 million to completely effectively knock down the stadium and start again? Or is it even worth it? Because eventually, while we all know that the Welsh football team eventually realised that a 72,500-seater stadium was more of a millstone than it was an advantage. It's a, Millennium Stadium was great when they could fill it, but how often are you going to fill it? Whereby if you just go to Cardiff City Stadium, it's about 30,000, much more enclosed, much tighter, and you can fill it week in, week out, regardless of the oppo, and you can still create the in you know the horrible atmosphere because it's a club ground that is used for internationals. And so as a result, that's where for my to my mind, Wembley fails. It doesn't have a legacy with regards to helping the England national team win. It doesn't work as a standalone football stadium. What Wembley works as is a neutral venue, and and its legacy in terms of the fan on the street isn't actually that positive, I don't think. It's, that it's something that you can be proud of, but in the same sense that it's not something that you ha- feel that you have a share in it. It is, you know, there, there are some people that really are verminently anti the semi-finals being played at Wembley. They think it should be Old Trafford. It, you know, it used to, as it used to be back in the day, on just you know revolving round club stadiums, and that Wembley should only be used for the set piece games. And yet, funny enough, some of those same people are the same people that say that Wembley should be utilised more. And this is what I almost want to sort of say: is that well. You're saying that you know Wembley should be kept under the FA and be used more and to make more profit, yet actually you want it kept as a showpiece event and you'd rather it be used less in that regard. It is kind of that awkwardness to it, in that if England follow, if England football team follow what the rugby team do and just keep every single England game at Wembley forever, it's not positive. It's suggesting that you know it's it's overtly London centric. It's it's almost saying it's more outward looking. It's the idea of see England have Wembley, it's this magnificent, amazing stadium, and that the whole rest of the world should somehow be envious of this world famous venue. Then it is really then saying that well, when England weren't playing at Wembley because it was being redeveloped, and when they went across all different grounds in the UK. I found that the atmosphere was better, that more people had a chance to see England play. There was better atmospheres, there were better crowds, it, there was more of a home atmosphere. And it was the England national team during that period was more of a national team, rather than the problems that Wembley have is that Wembley isn't a home, it's a neutral venue that in some way, shape, forms masquerades as a national stadium. Really, Wembley should be called an international stadium because that's really what it is more than it will ever be a home for the English national team. And so as a result, the legacy becomes almost a little bit... becomes twisted. Because 
and to me it hides the elephant in the room is that you have this massive monolithic stadium that isn't as isn't a real national stadium it you would rather the atmosphere at the Aviva Stadium, the atmosphere at the Millennium Stadium, and even to an extent the atmosphere at Hampden Park, even with all of its issues and problems as a stadium, that it's falling apart, that it's a stadium that is not you know, optimal for watching a game of football. But if you watched Scotland go 2-0 up at England, against England uh, a couple of years ago in a qualifier, and the atmosphere at Hampden was just in, immense... And Wembley has never achieved that. It is, it is not a very good national stadium. It is a, an amazing international sports iconic venue. It works for the cup final. It works to an extent for the semi-finals. And it works for some set-piece England games. But it does a lousy job as a national stadium. Because in the end it always limits the atmosphere. It's not a stadium designed for England to get a home advantage. Whereby, if you go to St James's Park, or if you went to Anfield, or if you went to Old Trafford, or if you took it around the country for some games, in other words, you can have the odd set piece England Germany game at Wembley. But if you were to have your qualifiers at these stadiums, and you, to really turn the English national team into a team that is national, that where anyone can watch it, instead of having to go out to a day trip in London, which is really to this weird neutral stadium that doesn't quite fit the bill. And this is where the problem of keeping it, it's an, a desire, a really strong desire to not, to have a history. Now Wembley has this amazing history, but it's complex. In other words, it can be just as meaningful for a Barcelona fan or a German fan as it is for an English fan. In other words, Germans would be like, oh yeah, we played a World Cup final there. We won the European Championship there. If you're a Bayern fan, you say, oh yeah, we won a Champions League there. You know, for Ajax fans, for Barcelona fans. Or if you've been there when um, you know, your you know, home nation, in other words, if you're Spanish and you went to Wembley and won, and how special it was for you. Or if you're an American football fan and one of the first ever games of American football you saw live was at Wembley. Every single bit, or if you were at Live Aid and thought that you know, Wembley was a fantastic place for a concert. So my question is, does the football fan want Wembley to have that legacy? To be essentially a £757 million millstone? Because that's what it is. It's not... It's a neutral venue. It's only ever going to need more and more remedial work just to keep it at the level that it is. It's never going to produce the atmosphere that you want, that's going to have a positivity, positive impact on the English national team. And as beautiful and as big as it is, it's a little bit soulless. It's a little bit corporate. It is someone sitting there designing it so that the rest of the world can admire it rather than give it the same power as if you felt it as if you own shares in it. In other words, like I'd imagine a Welsh rugby fan would talk about the Millennium Stadium, an Irish rugby fan or an Irish football fan would talk about the Aviva, or a Scotland fan talking about Hamden. 
And so for me personally, the greatest legacy Wembley could do was to actually follow its history, which is it is as a neutral venue that is privately owned. And if that's seven hundred million pounds that you get for it, and the thing is, this is what people forget is that Wembley has a buyer that needs Wembley. Supposing he decides to sell the Jacksonville Jaguars tomorrow to somebody else who decides they want to move it to San Antonio, then there is never going to be another person that's going to rock up there and put in that kind of money. And now, the issue is it becomes down to one of politics. What I said earlier was that, regarding English history, is that the people that opposed this deal had in their mind a history of Wembley and how it, the concept of public ownership that doesn't really match up with the actual history of it is that Wembley was privately owned until 99, was taken over by the FA and redeveloped. Because the difficulty is, is that Wembley for you know, the 80s and 90s was owned by an American company. Now the point is, is that back in, no, back in that, those days no one really cared about whereby in the last sort of generation you've had a whole situation where the property market has exploded especially in London where you have foreign ownership of you know large swathes of, of you know housing some of it's that that's left empty you've had you know globalization has happened so whereby in the 80s there wasn't really that sense of anger and frustration at the sense of England big and Britain you know, selling to foreign ownership. You know, the, the football clubs were still owned by, you know, by local businessmen. Whereby now, suddenly, the Premier League is globalised. You've had the whole situation with regards to Brexit. And the element of there being an anger over what Britain has turned into and where the future and its relationship with Europe. And Wembley has become, I think, a a convenient touch star for those for that feeling, that desire to want to own something that you know to say we own this, I own this, you know, football fans own it, the country as a whole owns it. And the problem is what it doesn't acknowledge is the flip side of it, is that. I've talked about Wembley's legacy, but the, the elephant in the room is, look around you. So Wembley may look, you know, at the top of the steps at Wembley Park, like this huge, massive, important status symbol for England and Britain and the, you know, to the world, is that look around the other parts of this country, look at the actual facilities that we have for grassroots football, which is atrocious. I mean, it, you don't. I don't need to go through each and every single bit. One in six games is cancelled because of you know the pitches are waterlogged or damaged or they can't be used when it's wet or when it's cold, or you know it just you know the change rooms are atrocious, and and what it comes down to it, it's a slow burn effect. In other words, you know you've had a situation where in the late seventies and eighties. The budget for, you know, maintaining parks and maintaining football facilities 
all slowly but surely started to get cut. Now the problem is for the first 10-15 years you might not have noticed. But now it is a daily visceral thing. You're losing playing fields. The playing fields that we do have are poor. You know, the local government do not have the money to put into it, to get them up to stretch, because they've been underfunded. You know, these parks and these you know pitches have been underfunded for 30 years. It's not just a case of, you know, hiring a groundsman or just putting a few thousand into, you know, paint the, the changing walls. It's much more structural. You need actual change rooms. These change rooms are falling apart. And as much as we'd love to live in a world where central government will then, Westminster would then take over and come up with several billion pounds to, if not resolve it, because I think it's reached a stage now where it wouldn't just, a billion pounds wouldn't solve it, but at least would ameliorate some of the worst elements of it, is that you've now, is we now have a situation where there's a huge amount of uncertainty with regards to, you know, what the future will hold and you know and the impact it will have on government spending. Now the point is is that no one is it's not a vote getter. If you say we're gonna spend billions on playing fields, there will always be a cacophony of people saying, Well I don't play you know, pub football I don't use these things. Why don't you spend that money on the NHS? Why don't you spend it on defence? Why don't you spend it on the police? And it's a real, I suppose, in a some way, shape or form, betrayal of what this country really stands for. In other words, sport and how it's had its impact internationally and nationally, it's a huge part of our culture. And it's one of the things that makes me probably angriest most about politics, to a certain extent, is the idea that we have created these sports, we have taken these sports all across the world, and yet we have such little respect for it, is that we can't even be bothered as a country to maintain playing fields, or to have you know 3G AstroTurf pitches. And... And what this, this Shadid Khan deal offers is a sense of creating an actual legacy for Wembley. That it's still going to be this international icon. It will still be there for FA Cup finals, the semi-finals, for key England games. But the idea that this stadium that has given the world so much joy and given us as sports fans and us as English and British people so much joy the idea that it then in its last kind of element to give us 500 million pounds that can mean that you know you have you know, park pitches in Cornwall park pitches in Carlisle and all across the country to be redeveloped from that money so that stadium would still be there and it would still be an international icon it would still be you know, legendary if you're an NFL fan, if you're a football fan, if you're a rugby league fan, if you're a boxing fan, or if you're a music fan. It would still be there, it would still be iconic, but it would be honest. It would be an international iconic venue. And it would be ran by someone who's using it as an international iconic venue. For when, if, if England and the United Kingdom win the World Cup bid, the World Cup final will be there. You've got the, you know... European Championship final and the semi-finals coming up at Wembley. 
the history of Wembley as an iconic international sports venue is only ever going to grow. But the park pitches in Carlisle, the park pitches in Cornwall aren't. And to get this money, to get this opportunity to give back, to create an English national team that doesn't always play at Wembley, that will be playing at the stadium alike, so that you can, instead of having to spend hundreds of pounds and travel all the hours just to go to Wembley and sit there and have a stadium that doesn't have the atmosphere because it's England versus Albania, to have it at the stadium of light where you can take your kid and it's not expensive and you can create a Roker Raw and cheer England on to victory. And to have you know the sense that football and the FA and the local county FAs would have facilities that are actually that were decent. And that's all I'm saying. Decent. It wouldn't be world class. I think if you probably looked at the park pictures in Germany, I'm sure they're much better. But the point is, is that you get what you voted for. If you voted for small government then small government will end up leaving your park pitches in a poor state. It's much in the same way. This is one of my greater angers about cricket, is that there's this perception of cricket as being this tough sport, that it's played by, you know, wealthy white men in public schools. And yes, as a stereotype... To an extent, it is somewhat true. If you do walk to, you know, from St John's Wood Tube Station to Lord's on Test Match Day, you do see a lot of people like that. And so, and so I can understand how people view that cricket as a sport, but it's completely wrong. It's, not, it's a disservice to the actual history of cricket is that you have these working-class men and working-class cricket clubs all across the country. You know, from all different parts of the UK, much in, which is much more diverse and much more widespread than rugby union. In other words, you have you know a thriving you know, village cricket scene in Cornwall, Devon. You have a thriving cricket scene up in Cumbria, and you know in the north of England. In the same way, and if you look at the county championship. I mean, the county championship gets so much criticism, but when you actually look at it, and how much of the country it covers, how you really, in theory, my view is I don't think you are anything more than about two or three hours away from a county ground, wherever you are in this country. Whereby, I think if you were to try and do the same thing with the uh, rugby premiership, I think you would, at times, be four or five hours away. And, and this is one of the un- unanticipated consequences of cutting off expenditure on sport in this country is that in the 1992 Cricket World Cup final it was England versus Pakistan and England had two players who both went to school in a South East London comprehensive and they'd managed to become professional you know, played for their school and they'd eventually got professional contracts and played for England in the 1992 Cricket World Cup final now if today you wouldn't have that you wouldn't. You would barely have one kid, possibly, who went to a comprehensive, and it his his or her love for cricket wouldn't come from the comprehensive. It's because they had gone to a cricket club, or maybe they'd got a scholarship to a private school which offered fantastic cricket facilities. 
So the problem is, is that the unanticipated consequences was, is that by not having, it's like, um, there's a, there's a fantastic story, well, it's a very sad story, but coverage in The Guardian of how, you know, virtually there are no cricket pitches in South East London. So, you know, whereby there used to be cricket clubs and, you know, the inner city children had the chance to learn cricket and play cricket, it's gone now. You know, the the only way is, is if you were somehow managed to get discovered, but you'd have to go to, you know, you'd have to go to a private school, something, you'd have to move. And all of, and the problem is, is that these pitches are now gone. They're, they're not coming back. Or the cost of replacing them would be astronomical. And so as a result, cricket has become this sport that is for the elite. It's become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think the classic example is if you look at the, the, the politics of it. It's like um, a huge amount of kind of, at the moment with the government, you had Theresa May, who's a huge cricket fan, you know, Boris Johnson. And yet at the same time, the political elite as a whole in this country has taken on a very market orientated view of it is that essentially if it's if something is required or if something is important the private sector will will find a way of paying for it so for example if you look at the what happened in the 2005 ashes is that you had 25 million people you know watching the games getting hugely involved in in this fantastic England victory against an amazingly talented brilliant Australian team a legendary Australian team you had millions of people that went on the parade in London and the whole country was really brought together and yet the problem was is that the funding for cricket across the country was poor facilities were getting worse and worse and the ECB were not hugely wealthy they didn't they didn't have the deep pockets to basically cover the whole country and really they were left with this with this problem they were at the cricket was at a zenith of its modern popularity and yet they really didn't have the money to keep the county championship going to keep you know the facilities up and so they were offered a huge amount of money by sky now the problem is if you take you know, cricket off of the you know, terrestrial television, you limit the viewership. But they were the money was there, and the money could then be used to prop up the game. And that's that's where the, the intrinsic problem is, is that you, you gave the, a board with limited amount of money, who had this huge, you know, remit for cricket in this entire country, in England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, and... They didn't have the money and the facilities that were being provided by central government. And it wasn't as if even, you know, what you used to have was, you know, the white label sports that had to be on British television. Wimbledon, the Formula One, you know, the cup final, this rugby, the cricket. And the problem is, is that now that is ever more declining, is that once you lose cricket, it's a whole generation has been lost. And, you know, as and as much as the sky money has helped you know maintain some levels it's it's not enough in the end cricket will only become less a national sport and more of a 
a more of a minority sport where you'd have to go to the right school or you'd have to be in the right area. And it becomes a postcode lottery and it becomes less of a national game and more of a, well, what council tax band are you in? And this is where... And this is what I'm going to end this podcast on, is that I'm going to give the people who are anti, you know, the sale of Wembley a choice. Do you want a £757 million crumbling Wembley stadium that has no legacy other than as a, as a soulless monument to, you know, British power, English power? Or do you want a Wembley that gives a huge, a whole generation the the opportunities to play on good park pitches to have proper changing rooms from you know everywhere in this country to have a whole generation that gives the same love the same love for sport and the same opportunities to go out onto a good grass surface and play 11 aside and just the joy of you know camaraderie of teamwork and you know the joy of exercise knowing that it was Wembley Stadium that gave them that opportunity thank you for listening